I'd ask if you could please stand with me out of reverence for the word of our Lord as we look at our passage for this morning. And uh, I had uh, planned to get down from Luke to go from Luke uh, twenty-one five all the way down to uh, down to Luke twenty-four, but I didn't even get close to that. We'll get as far as verse eleven. But I'm going to read the whole. I'm going to read the whole passage, um, so, just so we can sit, see the context of it. Uh, Luke twenty-one five to thirty-eight. Luke twenty-one five to thirty-eight. While some were speaking of the temple and how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. He said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray for many will come in my name saying, I am he and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be afraid, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to, put to death. You'll be hated for, by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart. Let not those who are out in the country enter it, for these, days, uh, these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations, and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know that summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. 
And every day he was teaching in the temple. But at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the building of his church. You may be seated. Let's pray again together. Almighty God, as we approach this passage of Scripture, there are things that are here that, that are very difficult for us to understand. Lord, things concerning the end of time. And as we look at this passage, it's, it's at times confusing for us because we don't know um, what's already happened and what is yet to happen. But Lord God, sovereign of all history, we know that history is advancing according to your timetable. We pray that you would help us, Lord, not to look to our own understanding, but to look to you who are the faithful one. And help us, Lord, to, to live lives as though the, the end of all things is, is imminent. Lord, to advance, to seek to advance the gospel through our, our words and through our actions. Help us, I pray, Father, to live faithfulness in faithfulness before you, for you are the faithful God. May we remain faithful through your faithfulness to us. Help us to understand, I pray, for your glory and, and not just to understand the when, but to understand the what, what we should be doing today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this past week, Jane has been teaching the kids to tell time. And I'd, I'd come back for for coffee and at, at home and... and uh, and I looked at them all sitting around the table and Jane's talking about, about time. And as, as my mind was immediately transported back to when I was in grade one. I remember so well those, I think back then there were ditto sheets, that stuff that, that smelled really strong. And, but they would have these, the, the photocopiers weren't invented yet, um, but they would have these, these ditto sheets and, and they would have these, these circles with the numbers on them. And, and, you, and you had to, to either, they had the time and you had to draw the hours and minutes or, or they had the... Um, that was, they had the hands on it, you had to write the time. Maybe you probably, all of you here at some point above a certain age have done that. And uh, I was listening to a, a, an English comedian, an Irish comedian, David Allen, was talking about, uh, about teaching his, his kids, his, his child to tell time. And he said, okay, he had his watch and he, he had it here and he said, okay, so, so son, here's the, 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 there are three hands on this on my watch and they, they point to the, the the minutes and hours and and his son says hours they, they're hours he said no it's it's a different spelling it's h-o-u-r-s it's hours and he says these three hands so the the first hand is the second hand and the the first hand is the second hand and he says no no sorry the the first hand is the hour hand and the the second hand is the second hand and he gets all confused by it and he says, okay, well, the, 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 the one and the two. And the son says, that's three. He said, no, it's 12. One and two is 12, not three. And he says, and he says okay, the, the one is five. The one is five? And the five is 10. And the, uh, sorry, and the 10 is, is 15, rather. And the, uh, sorry, the three is 15. So I just don't know how to tell time. And the, the, then there's the 20 and the 25. And the, the six is half. 
It's confusing. And there's this poor, he says, I'm just going to go out and buy my child a digital watch. But the reality is that the telling time for a kid is difficult. Some of us adults have a hard time with that as well. In fact, many would say that I have a hard time telling time because I never arrive anywhere on time. Working on it by God's grace. But as, as we look at this passage this morning, I'm going to try to teach you how to tell time. But not that kind of time. I'm going to try to teach you about the end times. And I'm, I'm going to offer you some suggestions that I pray will help you to discern the times. And to discern the end times. And to discern, more importantly than that, to discern yourself all the time. But a lot of people are, are confused and, and, and have, have really wrong ideas about these things. And I've seen that, that is, is especially in, in modern evangelicalism with, with the popular rapture fiction that's been doing the rounds in evangelical circles, especially a few years ago. You know, books and movies like, like Left Behind have really formed people's opinions about how the end times are going to work rather than the Word of God. And these influences tend to tempt people to think more about avoiding tribulation and being raptured rather than to anticipate the coming of Christ, let alone living for Christ today, no matter what happens, no matter what time it is. My objective here is, is not to, to help you to, to map out an, an end times chart as you anticipate the time of Christ's return, but rather to help you to live before Christ all the time. Now we might have different eschatological understandings, different understandings of, of how the end times are, are going to play out, but I, I trust that the principles we're going to learn here will actually help you no matter what eschatological framework you're operating from within reason. We all have to work out these issues keeping in mind that, that, it's, that end times issues are not something that the church divides over. Now there might be some practical applications of, of people's end times understanding that, that would, would lead to saying, well, you know what, this is probably, we're going to be going in different directions on these things. But frankly, I think we'll all be Surprised at the way many of the details are, are going to occur. But all who are truly in Christ are truly anticipating the return of Christ. And while we might not agree uh, precisely with a timetable of, of how it's going to take place, we've been given important insights as to how we should watch what's taking place around us. And how we should watch for signs of, of Christ's return and how we should especially watch ourselves in anticipation of Christ's return. This morning we're going to be looking at, at what is known as the Olivet Discourse. And, and be, as I said earlier, we'll be looking at just the, the first part of that, just in, uh, in Luke 21, 5 to 11. But the passage goes all the way down to, to verse 38. There's a lot of debate about what Jesus is teaching here in the Olivet Discourse. Some suggest that Jesus' focus here is historical, that he's talking about, about the destruction of Jerusalem that took place in A.D. 70. 
Others suggest that Jesus' main focus is eschatological, that he's, he's teaching rather is focused on the end times of what is yet to happen. It's a very challenging passage, and many wrong interpretations come from wrong doctrinal foundations or, or, or wrong hermeneutics, or a bad way to, to try to discern the Word of God, or, or, or reading your own presuppositions into the passage, or, or failing to, to cross-reference with other passages, especially to cross-reference Luke with, with Mark and Matthew, as we'll look at. It could come from overconfidence and thinking, yeah, I've got all this, all this settled. It come, can come from, from reading history through your own lens with the, the Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. Interpreting all current events as, as though they're reading them into the Bible when they don't necessarily do so. And the interpretation of this passage is, is made even more difficult, again, because of the differences between the synoptic Gospels, between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This, this teaching of Jesus, the Olivet Discourse, is, is in Luke 21. And it's also in Matthew 24 and, and Mark 13. And there are a lot of very strong similarities, but there's also differences of, of different quotations that are coming out and, and di- really appears to be a... a just different, different focal points in, in each passage. In Matthew, the focus appears to be more on end times, whereas in Luke, it appears at least initially to be more on the destruction of Jerusalem. Now, we know that the Word of God never contradicts itself. That's the, the number one rule of hermeneutics. The number one rule of Bible interpretation is that Scripture is the only infallible interpreter of Scripture. We must compare Scripture with Scripture. So there has to be a solution. Several solutions have been offered. Some suggest that we should, should interpret Matthew and Mark in light of, of Luke so they'd hold to the, the, the primacy, to use a, a, a hermeneutical tune, the primacy of Luke above Matthew and Mark. And so they're saying that these theologians would say that the great tribulation and the abomination that causes desolation, things that you might be familiar with that we're going we're gonna to talk about, um, refers specifically to the destruction of Jerusalem, that it's already happened. And another possible solution is, is that the, this teaching, the, the Olivet, what's known as the Olivet Discourse, w- happened on two different occasions. So there's, there's the Matthew and Mark teaching, and then another time the Luke teaching. And a third that is, is, uh, is probably more common amongst liberal theologians is that, that Matthew and Mark record what Luke what what Jesus actually said whereas Luke wrote after AD 70 so it's a, he understands that, that Luke isn't speaking prophetically here or the, in the word of God but he's actually talking that Jesus is here talking about what's already happened and sorry that that and that Luke is recording these things after then he's rewritten it in order to fit with what happened with the destruction of Jerusalem of course we we, we would reject that because it, it would it would deny the, the authority and the inerrancy of the Word of God. But each of these solutions creates more questions than they answer. I believe there's actually a much simpler solution. That Jesus is teaching about the destruction of the temple, and Jesus is teaching about the end of time. Now, I don't pretend to have all of this figured out, but, but I believe we need to see in this passage an imminent fulfillment and a future fulfillment, and that that Jesus is teaching about both. And I think you'll see why as we go on here. Listen to George Eldon Ladd. The divine judgments in history are, so to speak, rehearsals of the last judgment. 
and the successive incarnations of Antichrist are foreshadowings of the last supreme concentration of rebelliousness of the devil before the end. In other words, that there are key there are repetitions of key events in history that, that point toward the end of history. So Jesus is teaching here about the, about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and his future return because the destruction of Jerusalem parallels and points to end-time events that are going to happen upon his return. And I wish we had a lot more time together so we could look at the whole passage as one. So you're going to have to try to file this stuff and, or maybe even go back and listen to this message um, this week prior to Sunday so you can see how it all fits together. But the events that, that appear here in this, in this passage, they appear to be close together, but they, they could span, in this case, I believe they span millennia. Almost 2,000 years at least. It's like when, when you drive west from Calgary towards the Rocky Mountains, and as you, you see that the majestic mountain peaks on the horizon, as they line up in front of you, it looks like they're, they're all, to, all close together. But when you drive into Canmore and you're actually beginning to be in the mountains, you can see that there's actually vast distances between each mountain peak. And so when we look when we, from, from Old Testament history, as we, we look at, at prophecy, it, it can appear at times, and as we look at this passage, it can appear as though these, these things are close together, but it's not until we're actually in them that we see there's actually a, quite a bit, uh, there can be quite a bit of time between the fulfillments. The key point that, that Jesus, I believe, is dealing with here in Luke 21, 5 to 38, is not just about the details about what is going to take place, but about being ready when those things take place. Being ready now. So Jesus' prophecy shows that God is sovereign over future events. God shows himself faithful in future events. And so we must show ourselves faithful by God's grace in the present. Jesus is prophesying events that, that I believe have imminent and future fulfillment. So here's a, a brief outline of what we're going to cover this morning. First, we're going to see Jesus' prediction and the disciples' question in verses 5 to 7. Then we're going to see imminent and future deception in verse 8. And then imminent and future tribulation in verses 9 to 11. So, so then, let's consider how Jesus teaches us to tell time and how Jesus us Jesus teaches us to watch as we wait. Luke introduces this section by communicating, verses 5 to 7, Jesus' prediction and the disciples' question. Jesus has just contrasted the scribes and the poor widow. Right? The, the scribes' religion was proud and hypocritical. They robbed widows' houses. But this poor widow is lifted up as an example of faithfulness. The scribes robbed widows' houses, but this poor widow put in all that she had to live on into the temple treasury. So Jesus says that, that her two cents is worth more than all the rest that all the rich put into the temple treasury because she gave all that she had. 
And Luke tells us that 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 some were, were now as we go into our passage, that some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings. Matthew and Mark tells us tell us that it was the disciples who, who mentioned it. The temple in Jerusalem was was a, a huge and, and beautiful building. It was sixty feet high and ninety feet long and, and thirty feet wide. It was made of of huge white stones. Some of these these stones were themselves over sixty feet long and twelve feet high and eighteen sorry eight, and eighteen feet wide. The temple stood on a on a platform that was. 1,500 feet long and 1,000 feet wide. The, the facade of the temple was, was plated with gold. And the, the temple had gold and silver plated gates and gold plated doors. It had large, a large golden vine over the door and that, that was, was as tall as a man. The, there were tapestries at the doors of, of fine linen and blue scarlet and purple. Now this was the second temple. The first temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century BC. But 70 years later, after the exile of the Jews, after they were allowed to, to go back to Israel, the temple was rebuilt under the leadership of Zerubbabel at the urging of the prophets Haggai and, and Zechariah. You can read that in, in Haggai and Zechariah in the Old Testament. But the second temple, as beautiful as it was, paled in comparison to the first Herod undertook to enlarge and to refurbish the temple in about the year 19 BC. And the work wasn't completed until the year 63 or 64 80, so another 30 years after Jesus' teaching this. And only six years before the temple's destruction. But the temple was glorious. First century Jewish historian Josephus said that it, the temple flashed in the sun like a snow-clad mountain. But the temple's beauty was really nothing compared to its religious and cultural importance. As we said to the kids, the, the temple symbolized the presence of Yahweh and it was the, the center of religious worship in Israel. Sacrifices and, and prayers were made upon the altar twice daily and, and many more on, on Sabbaths and on feast days. Inside the temple were the the lampstand and the, the table for showbread and the incense altar. We read about the about this in Luke 1 when the priest Zechariah went in there to offer incense and the angel Gabriel appeared to him and told him that that his even though he was aged and his wife was aged, that they were going to have a son who would become John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner for Christ. That took place inside the temple. Then at the center of the temple, though, stood the Holy of Holies. And inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat where the, a high priest would, only, would go and only allowed to go once a year. And he would go in there and sprinkle blood on the, on the, on the, on the mercy seat and on the, on the Ark as a picture of the atonement of, of God for our sins. It's in the Holy of Holies. And this is what is about to happen, is that the Passover, the one time a year when the priest was allowed to do this, was about to take place only a couple of days after this. As glorious as it was, Jesus told the disciples that it was all coming down. Verse 6. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will be not left one here upon one stone upon the other that will not be thrown down. 
Now again, try to understand what this would have sounded like to a first century Jew. Remember that the city was packed with pilgrims who would come here specifically to celebrate the Passover. They were here for this, as they understood. Jesus said it's all going to be destroyed. This was the temple of Yahweh. The symbol of God's presence in Israel is about to be destroyed. Now remember, Jesus had already warned about this. On the verge of his triumphal entry, he lamented over Jerusalem in, in Luke 19.44 that um, you would be torn down to the ground, you and your children within you. you will, they will not leave one stone upon the other in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And you, now Jesus applies this specifically to the temple. And we know that Jesus' prophecy was fulfilled. In AD 70, less than 40 years after these, these, Jesus spoke these words, the Romans besieged Jerusalem and raised the temple to the ground. Jesus was right. Not one stone of the temple was left standing. Everything has been leveled. You can actually visit the site and, and see it for yourself. And out of the, the, whole, the whole temple mount, all that's, that's left is you can see that the western wall or the wailing wall as, it, as it's known. And you can actually even see that for yourself the, the massive stones that are they're in the foundation but the temple itself is gone. And on the Temple Mount, all that's left are two Muslim mosques, including the, the, the Dome of the Rock, the gold-covered dome of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's, it's there almost as a mockery of the temple. Now, we don't have an, an ornate building or any, any, anything like that. We're very thankful for this building, but it's, it's certainly not ornate. But when, uh, when Joshua and Abby and I were, were, in, um, were in London on the way to South Africa and, and Mozambique a few years ago, we had the, the, the privilege of, of going and seeing Westminster Abbey. Beautiful, historic church in, in London where, the, where the, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith was, was, was written and signed. Where, where kings and queens have been, have been crowned. So think about this, that, that beautiful cathedral. But again, the, the meaning of that cathedral is really nothing compared to what the temple meant to a first century Jew. Listen to J.C. Ryle. The fairest combinations of marble and stone and wood and painted glass are worthless in God's sight unless there is truth in the pulpit and grace in the congregation. The dens and caves in which the early Christians used to meet were probably far more beautiful in the eyes of Christ the noblest cathedral that was ever reared by man. You understand, the church is not a building. Brothers and sisters, you are the church. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That temple has been destroyed. This temple won't be. But again, imagine the simple shock. And so they asked Jesus in verse 7, Teacher, when will these signs be, or when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Again, this is another question. But unlike the questions of the Jewish religious leaders, this one was sincere. Mark tells us that it was Peter and James and John and Andrew who asked the question, and that when they asked the question, they were actually on the Mount of Olives, which is across the Kidron Valley from the Temple Mount. And so because it was on the Mount of Olives, this is known as the Olivet Discourse. 
Matthew 24, 3 gives the, gives the full question. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Let me read it again. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Again, Luke doesn't, he's still, it's still the, the word of God, but, it, but he, he uses, he emphasizes different words in the same quote. And so in the minds of the, of the disciples, they're asking the question, it was one question. Right? When Jesus talks about the destruction of the temple, because the temple was so important, they think, well, the temple, the destruction must be the end of the world. The end of the age. They thought that the destruction of the temple would happen at the end of the age. And so in the, in, in the rest of the passage, Jesus answers both questions. It's actually two questions. right? We now know, obviously living in the year 2022, that 8070 was not the end of the age. That there's two questions here. And Jesus, even though they didn't understand, Jesus understands it as two questions. And answers it as two questions. So Jesus tells them about events related to Jerusalem's fall in AD 70 and about the end of time. So as we're going to see, though, that the disciples actually weren't wrong. These two events were really and are closely related. So Jesus is telling them about imminent and future fulfillment. So now with the time we have left, we want to walk through the first two of the ways that Jesus speaks of imminent and future fulfillment. He tells us how the disciples must live in all times as they await the end of time. So verse 8, imminent and future deception. Jesus said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. Jesus is warning the disciples, and not just those disciples, not just the first disciples, but all disciples, including all the Christians who are here, not to be led astray during the turbulent times that are going to take place. False teachers are always a danger, but false teachers seem to multiply in turbulent times. We're seeing cults springing up as we live in turbulent times in our day. Jesus says that the, the, these false teachers will deceive as to who they are and when we are. They deceive as to who they are and when we are. Some of these, these false teachers went so far as to claim that they were themselves Christ. They claimed messianic authority. And often with tragic results. And, and history shows that, that close to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, there were many who claimed to be the Messiah and, and led them astray. You could read about that even in the gospel. We've seen that in our day. I remember as a, as a young child seeing images in, in Time magazine of the, the Jonestown massacre in, where cult leader Jim Jones convinced his followers to drink Kool-Aid that was laced with cyanide. And many others who were, would not drink it were forcibly injected with cyanide. And I remember the pictures. Probably one of the first times I saw a dead body. Just hundreds of people. 
just lying there in the ground. Or more recently, as a young Christian, remember with horror watching the, the situation in Waco, Texas unfold as, as David Koresh was, was as there were, were government officials outside and and he torched the house with, with himself and all his followers inside and watching just the conflagration as everybody inside died. Now, many other cults in our day have not ended with mass killings, but the results are no less tragic. The Mormons and the so-called Jehovah's Witnesses, these cults that supposedly had Christian roots, are leading people to hell. Not just to death, but eternal death, even though they deny eternal punishment, but they they still are, are sending people there. So false teachers deceive as to who as to who they are. And false teachers also deceive as to when we are. They say that the time is at hand. And many Jews living around AD 70 thought that the destruction of Jerusalem was the end of the world. And, and you can see why they thought that. Even the disciples thought that. That the things that Jesus was talking about would mean the end of the world, the end of time. But Jesus says not to follow them. Jesus was saying, you can see that, he says, it, the end is not yet. That was not the end. The things that Jesus is speaking about here are not the end. You, you can't draw, I believe, draw a conclusion from this passage that, that this has all been fulfilled. He says it's not yet. So we need to, to realize that 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 Jesus was speaking of, of events that are historical and eschatological. Very clearly, he's speaking of the son of coming of the Son of Man in verse 27. He's referring to that, to his return at some future date. We'll see that, Lord willing, next week. And nobody knows that date. In, in the parallel in Matthew 24, 36, Jesus says, concerning, concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. False teachers will increase as the end of time draws closer. And it it makes sense as people try to make sense of the uncertainty around them. Especially during the increase in in trials and and tribulations that are coming. False teachers will spring up like weeds and offer false hope. The modern cults claim to know the day and the hour. They're they're big on dates predicting the end. Joseph Smith, who founded Mormonism in 1835, said that that God told him that Jesus would return within 56 years. The Jehovah's Witnesses predicted the end of the world in 1878, 1881, 1914, 1918, 1925, and 1975. Many of the people in this room were not even born in 1975. What does the Bible say about a prophet who prophesies lies? The people keep following the lies. Now, of course, we we reject these claims because we we know that didn't happen. But we have to be careful not to do the same thing. A lot of people try to read prophecies, as I said earlier, with a Bible in one hand and a newspaper in the other. And this is certainly true as as we experience the the, the trials and tribulations around COVID and the government government response to COVID. People are saying the end of the world is it's coming. It's going to happen very, very soon. And it might. The time might be at hand, but, but don't follow those who say they know. True Christian teachers will proclaim the same message Christ proclaimed. 
They proclaim repentance and forgiveness. Luke 24, 47. Repentance and, repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Their teaching must line up with the word of God. Brothers and sisters, flee from those who say, God told me without opening their Bible and reading it. And even there, be careful that it's not just some verse taken out of context. I, I know I have, I have friends who, who take prophetic passages that are talking about something completely different and apply it to their own lives. It's not what it means when God speaks to you from his word. Be careful that, that, that your, your understanding of God speaking to you is not some private revelation, but the truth of the word of God. We need to be discerning as to what is going on around us. You know, just, just very quickly, there, there are really four marks of a cult. There's more, but there's four key marks of a cult that virtually all have in common. And they're based on the four mathematical operations. There's a video called Marks of a Cult that talks about this. We watched it some many years ago. They add to the Word of God. Right? The Word of God is, is not sufficient in and of itself. They have to add to the Word of God. Either other books or other revelation. They also take away from the Word of God, but, but particularly they... they they take away from the deity of Christ. They, 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 they make Jesus less than who he is. Or try to say that Jesus is less than who he is. He's a, a created being. Okay, the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, they all do this. Islam does the same thing. And because they don't have Jesus, they have to multiply works. Because there is no way of salvation through Christ, the only way to actually be saved is by doing all these good things. And then finally, they divide people. They say that, that we are the only ones who have the way. The other churches are all false churches. So you need to reject those who, who, who do not hold to the inspiration, inerrancy. Reject the teaching of those who do not hold to the, in, the inspiration, inerrancy, authority, sufficiency, and clarity of God's word. Reject their teaching outright. Because if they're wrong on any of that, they're going to be wrong on all of it apart from the sense in which a broken clock is, is right even twice a day. Reject the teaching of those who do not believe that Jesus Christ is God incarnate and that he died for our sins and he rose on the third day. Reject, the, reject the, the teaching of those who, who tell you that you have to do something, that you have to do anything to be saved in addition to repenting and placing your faith in Christ. Reject the teaching of those who say that, the, that our church is the only church, our way is the only way. Now that would obviously, all of that would include the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, but I believe the Bethel Church in Redding, California is, is best considered a cult based on these criteria. Disciples need discernment to avoid being sucked into false and false end times claims and conjectures. They have nothing to do with God's timetable. They are a distraction that keep you from serving God now in this time. So then, we've seen imminent and future deception. Now, with the few minutes we have left, let's look at verses 9 to 11, imminent and future tribulation. Verse 9, when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. In the parallel, Matthew 24, 6, 
Jesus says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. Now, when Jesus said this, remember, Israel was was in the, the possession, was occupied by Roman armies. Roman soldiers were everywhere, especially in Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate, the, the Roman governor, had his main residence in an impressive fortress on the, on the coast in Caesarea. But he regularly went to Jerusalem during Jewish feasts as a show of force. And he resided in Herod's palace, and, and Pontius Pilate was there at this moment in the lead-up to the Passover. In the years leading up to, to AD 70, when the, the Jews rebelled against Rome, and then Rome came in on, on force and, and crushed the rebellion and, and killed hundreds of thousands of people. We see the fulfillment of, of, of this in part. We're going to talk more, a lot more about this when we get to verses 20, 20 to 24. But even there, Jesus is saying the end is not yet. Jesus is speaking to the disciples here, the, the end as being sometime in the future. And he's telling them not to be terrified. He's telling us not to be terrified as well. Now, I grew up during the Cold War. And and we, we would, you know, remember watching... Shows and movies would have to, have, you know, the, the, the Saturday morning cartoons would end and saying this is this is a test of the emergency broadcast system. And we hear this this, I think it was a thirty second beep. And we you know that, that was saying like if if we go off the air because there is some catastrophe, especially a nuclear war. There was a, an air raid siren just down the street from our home, and, and it would have these. You know the sound. If you ever watched a, a World War II movie, you know the sound of the air raid siren, and and these would get tested periodically. And these were there in case of nuclear war. This was it would have hung over our heads like a cloud in that in that age growing up. But even at this day, there's there's over 40 armed conflicts in the world right now. And as Iran grows closer to developing nuclear weapons, as tensions with China mount, as Russian troops mass on the border of Ukraine. I can understand in a human sense being worried. From, from a human perspective, it, it looks like, wow, this, this really could be the big one. But we know that, it, that this is not how it ends. We know that nuclear war, global nuclear war is not how it ends. Global warming is not how it ends either. But we, we don't have to be terrified about this. We don't have to be afraid about this because God is faithful in history. Wars are going to continue to take place because war is in the heart of man. It has been ever since the fall. But it's not until the return of Christ that wars will cease. No, there's there's a an end times view called post-millennialism that is, is gaining traction. And it's the view that that things are going to get better and better and better until Christ's return. This is not the testimony of Scripture. Because only at the return of the Lord will war cease. Isaiah 2, 4. 
He shall judge between the nations. They shall decide disputes between men, for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is not now. This is after the return of Christ. But, it, but it's not just war in the present. There's, there's many other forms of tribulation as well. In verse 11, there will be great earthquakes and in various places famines and pestilences and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. There's going to be physical signs on earth. Earthquakes and famine and pestilence. And again, these things were powerfully evident around the destruction of Israel. Archaeological evidence shows that there were earthquakes in the region. It's even on some coins that were, that were, were minted around this time that, that depicted an earthquake that, that a massive earthquake in that region. And there was major famine and pestilence, especially in, in Jerusalem and Israel during the siege of the country in the city. And there's, there's if we think forward now to our day, that there are many earthquakes in our time as well. Jane, is, Jane grew up in Southern California, and we were just talking the other night about her experiences during the 1994 Los Angeles earthquake. She said her, her dad woke up on the floor as the earthquake threw him out of the bed, as, as Jane lost part of the end of her toe, trying to flee the house and, and cutting it on a broken glass. This is a little trivia piece for, for Jane. But th their home was hit hard. And even though there's only 54 people who were killed, there was over $20 billion in damages and $49 billion in economic losses. Many of us here remember the Indian Ocean earthquake in, in 2004 that killed almost 230 thousand people or the 2010 Haiti earthquake that killed almost 160,000 people or even in 2011 the Japanese earthquake and tsunami that, that killed over 20,000 people and, and so these things are are catastrophic they're 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 tribulation but they are not the end of time in and of themselves these tribulations will increase before the end of time as they lead up to the great tribulation we're going to talk about that further in Verses 20 to 24. But there are also signs, or ter sorry, terrors and great signs in heaven. And as, and as I had read this, and you know, many times, and, and I assumed that this referred only to a future fulfillment, that the signs in heaven would be there in the future, just prior to the turn of Christ. Jesus, where Jesus does speak about the signs again in, verses, in Luke 21, 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth. However, now I'm not so sure that it's just the future that it's in view here. I just, just learned this this past week, but, but Josephus, in his book, Wars with the Jews, described a flaming sword at, at, at the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, a flaming sword seen over Jerusalem, and, and a comet that appeared there in the sky for 12 months. He spoke of a light that, that shone so brightly one night between the, the altar and the temple that it seemed as if it was midday. He also spoke of eyewitnesses seeing, seeing chariots and, and armed troops fighting in the sky on certain days. And, and that on the day of Pentecost, when the, the priests entered the inner temple, they heard a great noise, like a great multitude, and, and crying out, let us leave here. He spoke about the heavy eastern gate of the temple, so heavy that it, it took many men to open it, opening by itself. But it's not just Josephus. The, the Roman historian Tacitus also confirms many of these things. He says there were were many prodigy, prodigies pre-signifying pre their ruin, which was not averted by all the sacrifices and vows of the people. Armies were seen fighting the air with brandished weapons. 
A fire fell upon the temple from the clouds. The doors of the temple were suddenly opened. At the same time, there was a loud voice saying, The gods are moving, which was accompanying with the sound of a multitude going out. All these things were supposed to pretend some great calamities. And I was like, whoa, I didn't, I didn't ever knew any of this. We need to be careful because this is extra biblical information and it's in no way authoritative. But as you hear these things, you need to ask, well, well what motive could, uh, uh, could Josephus, who was a, a Jewish Roman collaborator and another individual, a Roman historian, have in confirming what Jesus taught? seems at least possible that Jesus then was here speaking of imminent and future fulfillment in the signs in the, in the sky. But again, as Luke 21.9 says, these things must take place. All of these events, even the destruction of the temple, are part of God's plan to bring history to its full and final consummation. To actually inaugurate, not to inaugurate, but to establish the kingdom of God. And it's impossible to know when this is going to happen. You need to watch and pray. Yes, pray for the Lord's return, but also pray that you will be prepared, that you will respond in a Christ-like way with steadfastness, but also with meekness and humility to what takes place around you, no matter what happens. It's important to discern the time, but it's even more important to learn how the Lord would have you live in any time. It's more important to learn the timeless principle of walking faithfully before the Lord, of eagerly expecting Christ's imminent return and being ready all the time. Let's pray. Almighty God, again, we thank you for this passage. And, and Lord, we confess that, that there, there are complicated things here and, and troubling things here. But Lord, I pray that you'd help us all to know that you are sovereign over history that you are bringing all things to their appointed end at the appointed time. Lord, may we incorporate in our understanding the, of this all things, even the all things in our lives, and some of the all things that we face on a day-to-day basis, even today, are hard. And they, 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 they shake us. They trouble us. Lord, it's, it's natural to be troubled by some of the things that we face. Because it is natural to be troubled by some of the things that are discussed here. But Lord, we pray that you would help us not to be terrified, but to trust in you. Lord, help us to know that you are sovereign over our future. Because you're sovereign over all future. And you are sovereign over the present as well. Help us, Lord, I pray, to live in the present as those who have been purchased by the blood of Christ, those who belong to Christ, as those who long to be with Christ. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come soon. Lord, we want to see you face to face. We want to dwell in your presence with, with no more temptation for sin, with no more distractions, with no more troubles, no more tears. Lord, we long to see you. We long to be with you for all time. We pray that you would fulfill your plan and that you would come and take us to be with you forever. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.